This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. UX Podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks, everybody, for taking the time to join us on today. And as always, a very special welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. This today, I I don't know, some people might not see it this way. I do. I see this as a milestone episode because it is long, long, long overdue. Uh, It's just hard for me. I I wish I could do what this person does sometime and, and record as many times a week, but I do what I can. I contribute what I can, but this is a champion of experience design. (laughs) And I'm so excited to have Debbie Levitt on the show today. And we'll get our new. (laughs) I'm so happy to have her here. (laughs) Folks who listen to this show, you know, this, my pet, I do this because of my passion for the discipline. And and Debbie is like-minded. It's, we care about the discipline. It's not about us. It's about building other people. It's about taking the discipline forward. So I'm excited. I'm mega excited to have Debbie Levin on the show today. And as is my custom, uh, I am going to start the show by letting her introduce herself. So Debbie Levitt, the newly married Debbie Levin. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> and newly COVID. I'm so sorry to you in the audience. Uh, we we did unfortunately pick up uh, COVID traveling to our own uh, wedding. Yeah. So for some people who know me and say, gee, her voice doesn't sound quite right. You are correct. Uh, I've got my <laughs> Kathleen Turner tenor going on oh uh, and I apologize. Um, so hi, I'm Debbie Levitt. Uh, my company is called Delta CX and that's my YouTube channel as well. And Delta CX is a full service CX and UX consulting firm and agency. So we do projects and training and consulting around CX and UX stuff, whether that's uh, doing actual research and design and strategy projects or coming into companies and trying to help them be more customer centric, fix relationships between teams. Uh, these are the things that I'm normally doing. And then uh, people uh, tend to run into me. I'm active on LinkedIn and uh, also on my own YouTube channel. Awesome. 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 And we've got some questions. We got the standard stuff that we're going to do from a talking shop perspective. And Mm -hmm. then we're going to dive into, let some people know now we're going to dive into Debbie's new book. She's got a total of three books, actually. Is it three or is it four? It is three, it is though. Three. Uh, okay. I just recommend the new one. You don't, you know, the each has been like kind of an evolution of the previous one. So if you're going to check out customers, know you suck, you probably don't really need the other two. And, and I'm so I'm going to do that. Put my hand like I'm whispering to people, buy them all. So <laughs> no, you don't have to really. It's OK. Please. Customers know you suck is the new one uh, came out December 2022. And uh, I am wildly excited about it. And and, and rightfully so. It, it is a really dynamite book. I've only been Thanks. able to digest bits and pieces of it here and there. But the thing looking through the table of contents and then jumping around and looking at different chapters, there are some things there that I'm like, wow, this is one of the reasons why I'm excited to have Debbie on the show. 
we're, we're, we're doing this partially. I mean, I want to pr- help promote the book. Uh, I bought it before it came out. I'm recommending it to people. Every time I turn around, I'm about to do a blog post that's focusing on one part of the book and, and going to encourage people to buy the book because of the content. And in this day where there's a lot of books, there always have been a lot of books. Uh, there's a lot of information, but misinformation is everywhere. And to find something that really holds its weight is is just always fantastic. And Debbie's book is is awesome. It is a must. Thank you. Have. I am uh, covered in butter. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if she caught this. I, I already added it to my book recommendations list. Thank you. Uh, making sure that people, and every time I update Thanks. it, then I share it again. All right, the book, it's updated. Here we go. And and because a lot of times, like I say on this show, the it's UX is about more than the work. Experience design is about more than the work. There's a lot of mindset oriented stuff in the book that helps to vault people forward. You can put together all the wireframes and prototypes and all those other little artifacts you want, but it's the, it's the mindset behind the work that is like our, I call it our superpower. So to it's speak. the strategy. So, yes. You know, I can be hit and miss on the whole mindset thing. I think some people misunderstand that, but yeah. I think it's about being strategic. Yes. So many times when people say, oh, our project failed or, oh, we designed this thing and it didn't really work for customers. We have to fix it later or the usual things you hear. And I say, well, what was your project's strategy? And they go, what? Uh, you know, what do you mean? And I say, well, you know, didn't you have an overarching strategy based on any sort of qual or quant data? What was the problem statement? What problem were you solving from the customer's perspective? And how did you make sure that you solved it? Well, what was your strategy? And so often they're like, oh, we we didn't have one. Like, are we supposed to do that kind of thing? And so it's like, yeah, yep. you are. So, so I, I tried to write the how to book for, for getting yes. there, but, but I know we'll get there. I know you have some yes. preliminary talk and shop questions yes, for yes, me yes. first. <laughs> so but I'm, I'm already excited and the energy is bouncing off the walls. Just, and, and I mean that in a good way. And that's, that's great. I, I think I got a, a vision of those old super balls we used to get out of the cereals <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, just bouncing everywhere. So I'm glad for that. So, but let's, let's dive into the base talk and shop type of questions because people do want to know these things. So you've already given the introduction, uh, but how did you, how did Debbie actually get in the UX? How did your journey start? And what was your light bulb moment that let you know this was the direction for you to go? Yeah, the it's a long, weird story, but the shorter version is that um, I went into university double majoring in chemistry and music, thinking that I was going to be a lab researcher because I wanted to cure every disease. I wanted to cure genetic diseases. Um, so that's just kind of who I am. Get to know me. Yep. Um, and <laughs> I've always been a computer geek. I've been on computers since 1979. I got my first computer in 1985. So I've always been a computers, tech. I was the person at home who wired up the stereo. I was the person <laughs> troubleshooting the electronics, you know, so um, that, that you know, so all of these things eventually lead into, um, you know, I got on the internet in 1992 and then I graduated college in 93 just with a degree in music. I ended up dumping the science and I said, ah, I don't think I want to be a lab worker. Um, so that's why I always tell people it's great if you are changing careers, you, whether that's into UX or out of UX, I encourage everyone to find what's right for them. Hey, I'm not a lab worker. Um, But after I graduated, a friend called me up who was still in university and he said, 
hey, you have to see this thing called the web and you can make these pages for it. You know, check it out. And I think I stayed awake for a week straight teaching myself HTML, uh, which would have been 1990. I think by the time he was calling me, this was early 95. I was out of college in 93. I was working in the music business in New York City. I was also working with Steely Dan, for those of you who are into music. And uh, all of a sudden I saw this thing called the web and stayed up for like a week straight learning HTML. And then I was like, hmm, I bet I could start a little business where I'm making these pages and sites for people. I bet people would pay people who know how to do this. And then I said, <laughs> you know, I, I should probably make these things based on some of those psychology classes I just took in college. Because when I dumped my chemistry major, I picked up a bunch of psych classes just for fun because I had an open schedule. And so I took psych one and I took psych of language and psych of music. And so I was doing these cognitive psych classes just for kicks, baby. And so I thought, <laughs> hey, you know, I maybe I should make websites and web pages based on what I've learned about how people parse information and communicate and organize things in their mind and, and things like that. And I hadn't heard of UX, which is so weird because evident, I found out later my school had a human factors program and I never knew about it. And I, I could have ended up in there and maybe I should have ended. Actually, when I think about it, I shouldn't have ended up in there because I learned later who one of the professors was. Um, <laughs> and let's just say it's my arch enemy, but... <laughs> So I've, I've taken the best path possible, but it, it ended, it was a long road to eventually stumbling on UX, but I, it was one of those cases where I was pretty confident once I learned about UX, I was like, holy cats, these are the things that I've been doing. I just didn't know there, there was a formalized standardized universe. And I'm sure some people getting into it now feel this way, though it's, it's more known now than, you know, I'm talking about late nineties. Um, and so, yeah, I had this kind of weird circuitous, accidental way in where I was always a strategist. I was always uh, an interaction designer. I'm not a visual artist. I hired a visual artist. And eventually it was like, oh, holy cats, this is kind of what I'm doing. Time for me to just do some extra reading and learning and get with the formalized approach to it. So that is the medium version of an even longer story. Edit that, please. <laughs> No, they don't need to edit. I think people need to hear that. And one of the things that jumped out at me the most was the wanting to solve the woes, the that the mindset behind the science. That, yeah. that, that's that reminds me of that that whole, you know, what kind of UX are you, what flavor are you, and the things that make up who we are. The desire to help, I think, is, is something that's uh an overlooked element that uh, a, yeah. a quality that UXers should have because that's what we yeah, do. Would, I want to jump in and say when I was little, one of the nicknames my parents gave me, or at least let's say one of the positive ones was <laughs> champion of the underdog. And, and I think when people who know me now, you know, almost 50 years later, they, they might say, yeah, you know, Debbie is that person. She wants to go to bat for the people who aren't sure of their direction or don't have a voice or aren't sure who to ask. She still is the champion of whether it's the underdog or, or the introvert or the unsure person or the person with questions, um, that's who I am. And I think th those people who really feel rewarded helping others are a good match to UX. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. 
So, yeah, good story. And I think people, yeah, they need to get all of that. <laughs> From an acumen standpoint, how did you develop? Uh, people are always asking about how do you develop? What do you do to grow? What what types of things happened for you and, and what direction did you go? How did you develop your acumen in the discipline? Yeah, I think the the key ways that that worked for me was number one, I was always very strategic for my clients. It was never like, hey, I made you a screen. Good luck with the screen. Keep me posted. It was always let's look at larger questions. Let's look at more end to end experiences and let's look at what does this mean to your user? Like I remember having a conversation with a client in probably earlier mid 2000s and we were designing something for her and she kept rejecting it. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. And finally I said to her, okay, you don't like it. You don't like any of these things, but let's go back and look at them. What will your customers think of this? She goes, Oh, they would love this. I'm like, well, then why weren't we going with it? Like, no offense, but who cares what you think? And and we had a good laugh. And and she goes, she goes, I don't even buy this stuff. And I was like, well, you are not the user. And, and so we finally eventually got there. And and I think that what I was able to bring to a lot of this stuff was always staying focused on the customers, the end users, whoever they were, B2B, B2C, whatever it is, and always asking does this work for them? How does this work for them? Where will they disconnect from this? Where, where do, where are we putting band-aids on something bad? Where can we make this better, faster, easier? Yep. So I think staying in, in that space and trying to be strategic about projects and, and designs and solutions is really the key. And then I think one thing that really exploded my world open, which is going to sound silly to some listeners, but that's okay. I'll, I'll risk it was, um, in early 2011, I decided I needed to become the world's expert on one piece of software. I decided I was going to pick one piece of software and just become the best person on the planet at it. And I looked at all the software that was out at the time for UX, which which was a good amount of stuff. You had uh, Balsamic, I think. You had OmniGraffle. Uh, you had iRise. And I know people are shaking their heads going, when is she going to say Figma? No, Figma didn't exist. You know, Sketch didn't exist. And then I stumbled on Axure, uh, A-X-U-R-E. And I took a look at what it could do and what it cost and compared it to the others. And I said, I need to become the expert at this. And there's definitely people who know Axure better than I do, but I really threw myself into it. And I made some incredible prototypes for people. And I ended up making an incredible reputation for myself at the time. I joked that I was on everybody's email speed dial in the San Francisco area when you wanted to do better usability testing of a more realistic prototype, I got brought in. And, and sometimes just for a month, you know, sometimes just for short contracts. But I, that really helped propel my career as well, because I was nice. certainly a specialist as a designer and a strategist. And I, ha and I hadn't gotten much into research yet. That kind of started around 2011. But uh, so I couldn't sell myself as the end to end UXer. But mm -hmm. I think showing up and being that proficient in action and bringing ideas to life that quickly definitely got me work and definitely made people a lot more confident in my work because they could really see how it was going to to come to life and and be built. Um, so sorry, that's a very long answer, but no, that that's no. what I'm thinking. Take as long as you need on any of the answers. I, that, that's a great story. 
to hear. And one of the things that you said that jumped out at me there was about people building confidence in your work. Yeah. And, and I think it's important for especially up and coming UXers to understand that that's where the value prop is. That, right. That, Why do you need me? Yeah. Why hire me? <laughs> exactly. You could hire anybody. You could hire Darren. You could hire Dr. Nick. You could hire my husband. You could hire my dog, you know, but why do you need me? What do I bring to this other than a sense of humor and, uh, you know, cute hair? So I think, you know, there's got to be something that I'm bringing to this. And, and, it, and I think that's reflected in a lot of the juniors and, and the up and coming people say to me, how do I stand out? Yeah. How do I stand out? And I, to me, and this is my opinion, I say the number one way to stand out is to know what you're doing is to be good at this stuff. That's going to make an impression on people more than some of the things that they think, you know, UX versus UI or which UI is better or look at the the pretty design that I did. Cool. There's their time and a space for that. But when a company has a problem that needs to be solved, yes. they're looking for a problem solver. Yep. And if they don't have a problem to be solved, they don't need me anyway. They, they want the, a pretty artist or, you know, they want someone with other specialties and that's fine. But we need those people too. But I was able to carve out a universe where if you needed a problem better understood, you need things solved, you wanted something more user centered. And especially if you wanted an amazing prototype that was really realistic, you called me. Yep. Yeah. Excellent stuff. So now we're going to get into the book. All right. And, and again, this is, this is like just thinking of all the books I've seen over the years. And looking at some of the contents in the book and the, the, the direct messages that are had, I love the bring up the topic and then have an interview type of thing that happens from time to time within the book. So there's a lot of interviews in the book for those who are not already. There's 11, 11. Okay. 11 interviews, just dynamite stuff. And, and, and that you can sit. And one of the things I love about the book is uh, the, the thought processes the things that get stimulated because of what you see. That's, that's one of the great values of any book. You know, there's always the show somebody how to do something. You always have that, but I just love how it, the the thought that it fosters and how it can really stir somebody up to really go to another level. So, but that said, share the story with us, uh, Debbie, behind how this particular book came about. So the book came about because um, in early 2022, I had been writing a workshop that I still give. People are welcome to attend. And I named it Transforming Toward Customer Centricity. And I figured, ah, you know, this workshop's going pretty well. I've done it a few times. I'm getting great feedback. People keep asking me to make it longer. So I must be doing something right here. Otherwise, people (laughs) would be like, please make this shorter. It was hell. And so I figured... (laughs) why not create the companion book? And that's really how the other two books started as well. They started as companions to conference talks or workshops that I was doing. And hey, why not have the book version? And so when I started putting together the book for uh, what was at the time, Transforming Toward Customer Centricity, the book version, um, 
it just started coming together and it just started, uh, I started reordering it and I started picking who I wanted to interview. Uh, The interviews ended up just amazing and really dovetailed well into each other and into the book content. Uh, Of course, uh, ending on on the perfect uh, interview with Seth Mbele, who not having heard any other interview or read any of the book, uh, touched on almost every key point (laughs) of the book. It was just like, oh my gosh, you have to end the book. You have to be the last voice people hear. So the book came from that workshop. Uh, and again, people can find the book and the workshop on my new site, which is deltacx.media. So the Delta CX media site um, has uh, a download. You can download the book for a dollar. Um, it's got how to join the transforming toward customer centricity workshops, which have, uh, which I'm going to rewrite now that the book is out to have some lessons from the book and lots of actionable exercises. Um, so yeah, that's, it, it came from, uh, okay. All of my books came from a, how can I help people make change? That's the question I ask myself. How can I write an actionable how-to book to help people understand why things are the way they are in their company or division or team or group and how to look at that a little bit more objectively and think about the changes they want to make and make them. And in the Customers Know You Suck book, the changes are going to be towards customer centricity. So the book is really written for everybody. In fact, it assumes you you don't work in UX and maybe not even Mm -hmm. in CX. And it's really for product, engineering, marketing, business analysts, strategists, leaders, executives. Sure, UX can read it too, and it's going to give you some ammunition to deal with those people. But it's really for for them to help them understand why should we be more customer centric and what does that look like? Because I find that if you and this was another reason why I wrote the book was if you Google stuff like customer centricity and how to be more customer centric. Oh, you'll get endless stuff, especially from the big consulting companies, Gartner and Forrester. Everybody's throwing the word customer centricity around and nobody tells you how to do any of it. (laughs) Nobody tells you, you know, they say you are focused on the customer. You are bringing change internal and external to your organization. You put the customer first. You And I go, what does any of that look like? And and a lot of people think if I make a customer journey map, then I must be customer centric. Yet most customer journey maps are garbage, garbage in, garbage out and and not actionable. So I just felt like I had to write the actionable how to because all of these other sources uh, leave you hanging. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that, <laughs> that does happen quite often. Another aspect in the book, uh, and it's something I've heard you talk about. Uh, uh, from time to time. And always the first time I heard you use this term, I just, you know, I laugh a lot anyway, but I, I just loved it. So this again, another laugh from Darren came out, but uh, I want you to talk a little bit about the term aspirologies. Some of the people on the show may not have heard you talk about it. Um, they may never heard that before. And I think it's extremely valuable concept for people to understand. So I wonder if you could talk to the audience about aspirologies, what it means and provide some examples if you wherever you want to go with this. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, Aspirologies is my made up word. So, you know, if you Google it, you're just going to get me, I think. (laughs) 
And it's my made up word for methodologies and approaches that are really trying very hard to be the go to things. But in many cases, they fall short. They're theater. They're fake. They're and they're not giving us the outcomes that we've been looking for. We claim that they're innovation driven and then we come up with no innovations. And so in general, uh, what I say in general is that aspirologies, the most common ones you will run into are design thinking, because who knows what that even is this week? It just, I mean, there's no two people seem to agree on what it is. Yeah. Sad trombone for design thinking. It could have been a contender. Uh, design sprints, uh, which again, were designed for uh, startups to figure out yes. what their first product was going to be. But hey, most of us are not at a startup. And yep. if we are going to try to figure out what our product should be, shouldn't that be based on actual customer research rather than guessing at, at guesses? Uh, another aspirology is Lean UX, whether that's the Lean UX book or mm -hmm. what some people are calling Lean UX, which is not from the Lean UX book, but is just how much can we skimp on and strip down UX to almost nothingness because we think that's fast and cool. And so-called <laughs> democratization. Uh, the democratization of UX, which I call the dilution of UX, which is kind of your anybody can research, anybody can design. Well, that's, you know, yes, but not anybody can do it well. So if we have standards, yes. then that goes out the window. So these are your key aspirologies. And um, I've got it, my Delta CX book. Probably I spent a quarter of the book ripping them to pieces. In this book, I, I was a little bit more uh, narrow on this. I think I spent just 10 or, or 12 or 15 pages just a small piece of the book talking about aspirologies. And, and I, sp I do spend a large amount of the book talking about democratization. That's in chapter 12, mm -hmm. common research mistakes. I take every pro democratization argument I've heard and I rip it to pieces. So <laughs> aspirologies are kind of what I see as not really real UX. Now you have some people who say, oh, don't listen to people who say there's real UX or there's fake UX. They're just grumpy gatekeepers. And I say, well, I don't understand why, why we're inventing fights between each other. But the reality is yep. that there is real UX and there is fake UX. And, and that the more you know about UX, the more you see the difference. If you're new to UX, it's hard to know the difference. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't blame anybody yep. for not knowing the difference between design thinking and a design sprint yep. and human-centered design and user-centered design and double diamonds and double diamonds with a beaver on the end of them and all these things <laughs> we're seeing now. And so... <laughs> so I, I get it. it. It's hard to know what any of these mean and, and what are they and what should they do, especially when there's voices out there saying, oh, well, you know, there's no wrong way to do UX. But I would say there is yeah. because UX yeah. is about the user. If we have not involved the customers and the users and, and the people we're supposed to be researching and designing for, then I would say we probably haven't done UX well. The times in my career where someone said, you're not going to get to meet users and you're not going to get to test with users. You better just make the best thing you can. I made the best thing I can, but I would call that web design. I wouldn't call that UX. I didn't involve the users in a user-centered process. So 
I worry about our aspirologies. I think they lead us away from customer centricity Mm -hmm. because they often bring us into um, exercises and meetings and workshops where we get really self-focused. We ask, how might we in a world of (laughs) what what does our user need? Uh, that's it. That's bizarrely self-focused for what should be a user-focused world. We don't research with users, and then we guess about them. We use stereotypes. We use survey data, which is often flawed. We run these strange workshops where we just brainstorm who we think people are and what we think people do. Yet, if anyone did that to us in real life, we would lose our poop. I mean, if I said, <laughs> "Okay, Darren." You know, Darren, you're a black man of a certain age. I think you like X, Y, Z. And if I said something heavily stereotyped or something like that, you would want to punch me in the face. (laughs) Yet we go into rooms and we say, Debbie is a 50 year old white woman. So she and I've I've literally had this stuff happen. Debbie's a 50 year old white woman. So she must have broke ass college age kids. No, I purposefully had no kids. Oh, she must must want granny panties in a robe. No, I don't want granny panties in a robe, though I would like a really oversized, comfortable hoodie, as those who watch my show know. And these, I call them lazy buckets. We put people into lazy buckets and the lazy buckets get reflected in the aspirology fake personas we make. Here's our black persona. Here's our non-black persona. Oh, y'all, that's racist. And that doesn't fly, but I've seen that and that's not okay. Or here's our male persona and here's our female persona. And I go, oh yeah, tell me more about that as you send me pink stuff and hearts and flowers in a world where I want to talk about motorcycles and technical gear and I want to wire your stereo and and I buy my clothes in the men's department and uh, I'm just so sick of the lazy buckets. And we wouldn't do this if we had actual research and knowledge on our customers and users, the customer intelligence. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And and that actually transitioned us into, I love that when you mentioned that, I had had a little flashback when you mentioned the, how might we, I I don't know a hundred percent where that came from. I know about 60% of where that came from, but I am not a fan of that. And, And talk about the, how it makes you focus on self. And it makes me think about yeah. things like desi- uh, uh, genius design, which I've come across right. a lot. I've learned a lot of us have over the course of our career. But when are we going to focus on what the users want, what they really need? When are we going to to construct mental models that actually work? And, you know, that the, that thing that that's where that 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 passion comes in and sitting around in a bunch of with a bunch of people in a meeting asking the question over and over again. I've actually done this one time in my career, been part of one of these things and just sat there to listen to people say, how might we over and over and just continuously miss it. And just even from a heuristic, from a heuristic perspective, recognizing that people miss it with everything that they come up with. I, I wish people would, we, it was like rain, uh, critical thinking rain from heaven that would help us to, to think more about what we're doing to recognize how sensible or nonsensical something might be to help us perceive better. So just, yeah, I, I, that's a nice extract. But in for a me. world of in a world of what's the least we can do to get it out the door in a world of what's yeah. the least we can do to make a customer buy something in a world of what's the least we can do to say this is good enough and go to the next thing in a world of low standards. 
all of this works. In a world of low standards, all of this looks okay. In a world of low standards, this is this is good enough and we'll fix it later. But anybody who's worked in any tech job knows we rarely fix it later. We declare <laughs> we'll fix it later. We knowingly ship broken stuff. Yep. And then when we get the feedback that we claim we want and the feedback that Agile claims we want, when we get that feedback and we get the low ratings and we get the complaints and we get the angry tweets and we get the customer support calls and, and we we monitor all of this, um, then somebody goes, yeah, but it's, it's probably good enough or well but debbie called the customer support person and they helped her so that's okay but they don't realize that i'm still angry at the amount of time that i had to take out of my day to resolve an issue that shouldn't have even happened i mean anybody following me on linkedin right now and they'll get a clue as to when we recorded this um i just got a ten dollar invoice from ups claiming i didn't pay them customs fees (laughs) on an international package i received yet somehow they gave me the package and a receipt saying i paid the ten dollars of customs fees and it's the second time they've done it to me and i i emailed them today and i said this is a this is the mafia. This is what I grew up with in the new with the New York mafia. This is a mafia shakedown thing because the idea here is if you get an invoice, let's talk about bad actors for a moment. Okay, let's uh-huh. talk about good actors. You have an accounts payable team who wants to do the right thing. They get an invoice from UPS. It's legit. What do they do? Pay it. But they don't know that someone's already paid that. Because it's a crap invoice (laughs) and it's a double invoice. So now UPS has double collected this money. Do they even know that? Is that ethical? Is that legal? And why is this system so bad? But somewhere, somebody put together a system that that documented or uh, kept in the system who paid what customs fees. And someone said, this is good enough. And you know what? If Debbie has a, if we accidentally double invoice somebody (laughs) from time to time, they'll just call customer support and we'll figure it out. But that also assumes that you have good customer support. And unfortunately the customer support that we get here in (laughs) Italy to call Italy customer support for UPS is quite poor and disappointing. And no offense to any individual who works there. I'm sure you're doing your best. So you have to remember that's where we talk about the true customer journey map, the true end to end experience. You do not get to make a customer journey map that says Debbie gets a package. Debbie pays her customs fees. She got a receipt. We've got the evidence. Mm-hmm. She got her package. Now here's a storyboard of Debbie doing a happy dance with one of her five dogs. <laughs> the bottom line is Debbie is still in hell over $10. And this is going to drag on for days, if not weeks. Yep. Where's my customer journey map? Where's my service blueprint that documents that? And I want to talk to the person who said that what I'm going through was good enough. Yep. Very well said. Very well said. Thank you. You mentioned you mentioned something there that I think is a good transition because you mentioned customer intelligence there during during part of your answer on that one, and, and that's a favorite chapter of mine. I personally have only made it through chapter sixteen uh, so far, and I tend to jump around. You missed uh, the very exciting chapter eighteen. Oh, and that and that's coming. You told me about that. We're going to talk about All that right. before we're done, and folks. You wait to hear about <laughs> chapter eighteen. I just say that now. <laughs> But chapter six, one of the reasons that chapter six stands out to me so much is that 
it, I come across a lot of people. And I mentioned this to Debbie before we start recording. I come across, and then everybody does. There's a ton of people. The the hot part of UX today, if I could put it that way, is regarding UX research. Everybody seems to be trying to get into UX research. It's the thing I hear the most about when I talk to or see posts about people who are talking to get uh, talking about getting into UX. It's always about research, especially the big. And probably open up a can of worms, possibly even by mentioning this, but the whole um, um, PhD to, U, to UXR movement that's going on, where there's an actual group on Facebook called PhD to UXR, and, and but when I hear people talking about it and some of the work that I've actually seen people do, what they're what they're talking about and what they're doing when it comes to UX research doesn't really constitute. UX research. And, and, and this is an absolutely masterful. I mean, everything I think that Debbie does is masterful, but. Oh gosh. The, thank you. The, and, and you know, I don't blow smoke. I did, that's just how I feel about it. The, 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 um, the stuff, those of you under the sound of my voice. And I know some of you out there that listen to this show are getting into UX research. You're trying to get involved in, you're just getting started and you need to understand, have a broad understanding of what it is and some of the strategic elements behind the work, making sure to approach the work the right way. Chapter six on customer intelligence is a must read. You've got to dive into this content. And so I was going to ask Debbie to talk about customer intelligence, give you a sneak peek, so to speak here and elaborate on this topic and what it means to research or experience design as a whole. Yeah. So basically the, the approach that I take in the book is look, imagine we want to have more customers do business with us. Imagine we want to have more customers be happy with us. Imagine we want to have customers be more loyal, stick around, buy more. Look, everybody at the company wants that. The marketing people want that. The sales people want that. The execs want that. The, the shareholders want that. Imagine we all want that. Why don't we have that? Well, we're only going to be able to do those things based on making those customers happy, right? Having that product market fit. You hear that term thrown around a lot. What does it mean? Mm -hmm. It means creating product services and experiences that meet or exceed people's needs from, from your company. And that's how you're going to attract them. That's how you'll make them happy. And that's how they'll stay loyal or be retained as, as the buzzword goes. Now, how are we going to get there? Well, we can keep guessing what people need. We can keep hoping what people need. We can keep hoping that brainstormed ideas are what people need, or we can stop, take a breath and get to know users better. And that's where customer intelligence is. It's what do we really know about these people? Now, many companies, the most we know about customers are some surveys that we ran to see what can we sell people? What are they likely to buy? What's their budget? Who are they? You know, who are they demographically or who are they in their role in their organization? So we can try to sell them a thing. But and sometimes we do some wacky research where we show people a thing and we go, do you like it? Would you buy it? And then they go, sure. And then we're surprised later that they didn't. And we go, wow, <laughs> what happened there? They must have lied to us. And I go, no, you had the wrong information. You collected, you, you didn't do research the right way. You collected 
uh, some poor or flawed information that you based decisions on and it sent you in the wrong direction. So the idea of customer intelligence is not something I've invented, but it's the idea of why aren't we working from strong evidence. And the the call for evidence is everywhere. You hear data-driven, you hear evidence-based decision-making, you hear, we want to do data-informed design. You know, people say these things, they say they want to be informed by better knowledge and intelligence, but then they don't pursue that. They just go by assumptions about users. We know our users very well. We ran a survey and 78% of people said they like this and we don't stop and collect better information. And that's really going to be your early generative or exploratory or behavioral or discovery research, whatever we're calling it. It's about getting to know humans better and understanding their behaviors, needs, tasks, processes, priorities, collaborators, motivators, before we say, aha, here's uh, the problem they're having, and here are some possible solutions. Otherwise, we're just in a feature factory. We're just saying, mm-hmm. well, you know, we know a few things about people. Here's something we're thinking of building. Survey says people might want it. Let's just give it a try. And that might be really cool for startups who don't have as much to lose as you do. But even startups have yep. a lot to lose and yep. they forget that. So yep. that so the idea of the book is you can only be as customer centric as your customer intelligence is is leading you yes, towards. Yes. If you don't have good, deep, recent information about people, like I tell the story in a book, when the pandemic started, <clears throat> a very well-known car brand came to me and some other researchers and said, we really want to better understand what our target customers are doing because of the pandemic. How do they want to shop with us? How do they want to buy from us? We want to know how their attitudes and behaviors have changed. Perfect customer intelligence, early research, generative stuff, right? We wrote them a proposal for a very fair $140,000. And they came back and they said, this is perfect. This is exactly what we need. We definitely need to put our finger back on the pulse of changing attitudes and behaviors in the pandemic. Cause this was like 2020. And they said, but what can you do for $40,000? <laughs> and, and this is a company that sells $80,000 cars. And, and we said nothing. And so they didn't even want to spend the cost of two cars to better wow. understand their customers then. And so we walked away and ultimately what will that company do? They will guess. They will brainstorm. They will hire probably a marketing research person to survey people and say, what do you think you need? You know, and and they don't understand that that while this is sometimes good information, it's a very incomplete picture and that attitudinal and behavioral research, especially through observation, is very different than um, numbers and analytics and survey says. Awesome, awesome stuff. <laughs> and I wish people would. Yeah, I, I just read the book, folks. Read the book. <laughs> it's the book to share. You know, so, some of the people listening to this show may say, I, I already know this. I know the value of research. Sure. Then the book for you is ammunition on how to help create that change at your company. Because 
We're not getting it right. And our UX leaders aren't getting it right. Why do we still show up to jobs where we have to explain what UX is and where we have to explain the value of things? It's time for leaders to really take this horse by the reins, no offense to horses, and finally (laughs) make sure that people understand the value of this and why we do this and why it shouldn't be skimped on or skimped, skipped or diluted or democratized or everybody's a researcher or, or everybody can do interviews. Sure, but not well to insist the cat can drive, but not very well. <laughs> so, so yeah, the book might be ammunition for you in a conversation starter, but to me, it's the book to share to engineers, product managers, business analysts, executives, and other people who still think that the best way to build product is to guess at an idea and rush out an A-B test. Yeah. And and we blow that up in, in pretty early in the book. I think chapter five, we blow up that stuff. Wow. And I would, I would challenge people too, even if you know the stuff that Debbie is addressing in the book, it's really beneficial. I've, I always find it. I do it often. I already know this subject, but so what? Go and read it anyway. And, and you find, Thanks. I mean, isn't that what we do? How many books are there on our favorite subject? 200? And how many do you own on that subject? 100? Are you going to read one and say, <laughs> I know it and throw the other 99 over your shelf or your shoulder? No. So. A lot of times, a hundred people writing about the same topic are all varying just enough to make the investment in the additional book that much more worth it. Because how much more does a thought that's three degrees to the right of where you currently are, how much value have we found in that over the course of our degrees or, or the course of our career? So. So I challenge people, if you know something, don't, don't rest in that. That means nothing. We're going to, how many times have you reread? That's one of the things I challenge people to do now. Yeah, Darren, I've read a lot of books on this particular book recommendation list you have. I said, well, guess what? Guess what you can do now? What is that? I told a person this about a month ago, read it again. You right. have grown. You have changed from the time you first read that book. Read it again. I read. The uh, Jesse James Garrett's book, when it came out in 2002, I have gone through segments of that book over and over again over the course of the last 20 years. It, it behooves us because we change. Our perspectives change. The angle at which we're looking at the house. I use that metaphor a lot. You can look at a house from the front, but you really haven't seen the house yet. Because you've got two sides. It's you've like- got a back. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's like all of us have a a music album that we bought many years ago yeah, and that we listened to a lot. And then we take it out again many years later and we go, hey, there's stuff going on on this album or record or whatever you want to call it. And I, and I missed that. And, and I didn't, I didn't get that the first time or like the second time you watch a movie. And so, yeah, just a reminder to people that sometimes things are worth a reread though. Of course my book's been out, you know, two months. So it's, 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 please read it the first time. (laughs) (laughs) That's good stuff. So yeah, folks, please, 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 please do that. Next topic is chapter 16. Um, this comes up a lot. I hear you talking about this a lot on your, on different segments that you produce on your YouTube channel. I see you post about this. I think you reply to people about this, the issue of agile as it pertains to user experience and chapter 16 elaborates on 
what I personally phrase as, as a, you, you may rephrase this, but agile related challenges is the way that I sort of <clears throat> sum that up and the angles, the several different angles that you, that you approach agile regarding uh, experience design in that chapter, I think is fantastic. So let's take some time to, to tackle that topic. Yeah. So the book is also broken into parts and it is part of part three, which is called room for improvement. So that's why I kind of, where I kind of go into some of the things that we're getting wrong before I go into the last part where I go, here's how we do it better. Um, so that's where the common research mistakes chapter is. Uh, that's where the aspirologies chapter is. And it is where chapter 16 is, which is called when agile works against customer centricity. And yes. basically I talk about how hypothetically in concept, agile has a lot of greatness and agile strives for greatness. It strives for um, efficiency. It strives for uh, delivering more value to the end user in a shorter period of time and improving customer satisfaction. Yet, if we look at how agile is actually implemented in our day-to-day jobs and work and companies, I feel like none of that is happening. I feel like agile does doesn't give enough craps about customer satisfaction, Mm -hmm. especially because we keep rushing out garbage we know is broken. Hands up if you've ever rushed (laughs) something out that you knew you had to fix later, you knew wasn't going to be quite right. And that doesn't come from, chances are that didn't come from your UX practitioner. That comes from, oh, we need to be agile. And people mistake speed for agility. And they're not the same thing uh, in any sense of the word. Yep. So I cover the sub chapters in that chapter just to read them out loud. So people have a sense of what's in the book. The sub chapters are speed over quality. The customer is not in the conversation. We're going in the wrong direction. Feedback from working software. Reframe the MVP. Don't plan or design too far ahead. Is thorough CX work waterfall or big design up front and Agile was meant for engineering. Mm. <laughs> that's that's interesting stuff. One of the things I remember from that chapter is when you started talking about the Agile Manifesto, which people seem to be that this is the way that we're supposed to operate. And a personal thought from my perspective, would be interested to see to hear what you have to say about this, is that Agile was from the beginning, it was it was the Agile Manifesto in particular, when I see the pictures of the people who put it together and see the lack of diversity <laughs> that is reflected. I was just going to say, <laughs> look, there's some good stuff in the Agile Manifesto, but we have to remember that it was written uh, over 20 years ago by white men with, yeah, with and I think all engineers. <laughs> so, the, you know, there isn't even diversity of role. There isn't yep. diversity of ethnicity or gender or, or any of these things. And so, sure. And so uh, there, there's that. Uh, problem with the Agile Manifesto. But I say, even if we just take the Agile Manifesto as something that has some good intentions, um, none of them are being carried out. And I think one of the things I mentioned in the book is I once uh, saw somebody post to LinkedIn, the Agile Manifesto principle number one, which is our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through something like through continuous delivery of working software. And someone, a bunch of, or at least one guy wrote underneath that, see, that's what agile's all about. 
continuous delivery. And of course, my brain was exploding. I was going, <laughs> do you not see the customer satisfaction part? Right. Like you can continuously deliver crap. You can continuously deliver broken stuff. You can continuously deliver mistakes. Like the continuous delivery is not the focal point of that sentence. Sure, it speaks to the efficiency that Agile was going for and some of that speed. But I see the core of Agile principle, Agile manifesto principle number one as our highest priority is customer satisfaction. And, and we think this is how you do it. We think it's by constantly delivering working software that uh, continuously to people. And, and what I point out in the book, working software isn't enough. Nobody has ever yes. downloaded an app or gone to a website and said, you know, this sucks. <laughs> but it works. And and so that's probably okay. That you know, these are the things your product manager says, but it's like said no customer ever. And that's kind of how we ended up with the title of the book of Customers Know You Suck, because as I was writing it, it was getting further and further from my transforming toward customer centricity workshop. And finally I was like, I just feel like I want to call this book customers. No, you suck. You suck. You're getting a lot of stuff wrong. Your customers know it, but we all hold meetings and say, this is good enough. It's probably fine. And, and yet as customers, we know it's not fine, but then we show up to our jobs and we go, oh, it's probably fine. And I go, wow, there's a giant disconnect here. Customers yeah. know you suck. So I think we have, do have to take a good look at agile and actually Darren, when you eventually make it through the book, you'll find other people in the interviews are shooting holes at agile, uh, shooting bullets at agile as well. Um, Steve in what I think uh, from memory is chapter 21 or 22 that our product manager who I uh, interview, he blames a lot of stuff on Agile. Even the Agile coach that I interview in chapter 17, he's blaming stuff on Agile. So, you know, it, Agile it sounds great. We think we want it, but it's very easy to get wrong. And in many ways, it has nothing to do with UX. It was meant to be some sort of framework right, right. or paradigm or approach that would help make engineers more efficient. Because, Darren, you and I are old enough to remember projects that weren't agile. And, and we had this come up when my book was being edited. People were like, what was it like before agile? We think you and I ended up having to write more to explain this yeah. because I took it for granted that people would know this. But I remember being on a Wells Fargo project in 2012 to make their first native iPad application. And this was a year and a half project that was going to cost millions. And the customer was going to see nothing until the entire app was built and ready. And we don't really have a sense of that now because we're so used to things coming out out more piecemeal. And, and that can be good when it's planned and done well, but very often it's not planned or done well. And that, and that's where agile starts to fall apart. Just because you can break something into smaller pieces doesn't mean you should. And it doesn't mean that it's, it's created that customer attraction, satisfaction, and loyalty that everybody wants. Yep. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, told you folks, love it. Good stuff. <laughs> chapter 16 we we could go through we could actually do segments where we could go over every chapter but <laughs> that's all that's how I i'm feel doing a book it. club people can join the book club and we'll go through oh, wow. every chapter awesome awesome so here's we we come to we got through the five things i listed and then i had in my notes okay this is where we come to debbie's open segment what would debbie like to address herself 
And we talked about it beforehand. She talked about chapter 18. We mentioned it a bit ago. Chapter 18, and she told me, for those of you that are like me and you like having your digital library and you're not into buying a print copy of a book, (laughs) uh, Debbie's got a surprise for you. Matter of fact, I'm going to have to go and buy a print copy of the book because you can't get what some of the things she's about to mention in the digital version of the book. No, I don't want people to think that the the only thing that got, okay, so something got cut out of the digital version because I thought it didn't make sense for the digital version. Ah, One, I took out the index. Um, I think the PDF has the index, but the Kindle, I think, doesn't have the the index at the back. The, um, you know, because it was like the pages (laughs) don't match up in the Kindle version. Ah. So that got taken out for the Kindle version. I think it's in the PDF if you buy the digital version. But I also had made, I don't think this stayed in the digital version. I'd also made an expanded table of contents where I... um, where I ha- let the, cause I do this in Microsoft word, I let it do a table of contents down to header three. So it's like my, so header one is my parts, oh, header two is my chapters okay. and header three is my sub chapters. Gotcha. So you can see, so if people go, Ooh, where's that part where she wrote about empowered teams, you, you would, you mean, if you have the Kindle version, search empowered teams, you're going to find it. But um, <laughs> for chapter 18, um, cause this is for people. So the idea was for people who couldn't search cause they have a paper book. Chapter 18 is called strategy and planning. And it's the first chapter in part four, the customer centric path forward. And the sub chapters are customer centricity, maturity model, which is one that I invented yes. CX vision. Delta CX impact map, which is one that I invented. I tell you how common impact maps kind of suck and I've got a better version for you. Um, then another subchapter is CX strategy, making decisions differently, make great CX processes part of compliance, concurrent changes, obstacles, and dependencies, which is my new model, which I call the change dependency map. It helps you map out how you're going to create change in your organization Beware of fuzzy goals. Prioritization must include customer perspectives, value-led process playbooks, future perspectives and pre-mortems, document risk, empowered teams. Can we measure the ROI of a single person? Accountability and governance. And I want to mention quickly that as far as I know, my book is the only place where you can find a governance model for change. But that also includes some of the changes some of us are a little suspicious of, like democratizing UX. And in chapter uh, 12, and again in 18, I show the governance model and I say, look, in chapter 12, I say, here's 4,000 reasons why you shouldn't democratize UX. But what if you're being forced to? What if you're at a job and you don't have any say and they're telling you, let engineers design, let product managers design and interview. You don't have a choice. Get the governance model going. I haven't heard of anybody else who has offered a governance model for this type of thing. People are either just for democratization or against it, but nobody is saying, if you're doing it, here's how to have standards for it. Here's how to monitor it to make sure it's really working out for you because like anything else, it's an experiment. It would be an experiment to say anybody at the company can code. It would be an experiment to say anybody can be a product manager or some other role. This should be strictly overseen. This should have standards and governance, and we should check it to see if this democratization is working for us partially 
wholly or not at all, Mm -hmm. and then do something about that. So I really want to make sure people understand that while I do come out strongly against democratization, I also do offer a model where if you are doing it by choice or by force, you have a way to, to oversee it and be able to say, this is working, this is not working, and here's how we know. That's fantastic. And I love that is that there's everybody, well, and I say the word everybody loosely, think that everything <clears throat> is either black or white, up or down, north or south. And a lot of us, when it comes to certain experience design related topics, we have to dwell. We're, we're pretty much required to operate in a gray area. And, and it's important to understand, in fact, call referring to that as a gray area. You, you know, d- pros and cons of democratization. Debbie is coming out letting you know this is something that's basically not good. But some of us don't have a choice. And, and there are right. so many things that happen in the, the UX, the experience design world, <laughs> that the same thing happens. We, we, this is not, I mean, I constantly ha- get involved where, I don't think it's a good idea for us to do design sprints, but guess what? That's the way the company works. So when that happens, you have to come up with a way, how can I operate in this mandatory area that I know in general is not the optimal way to operate, but I'm going to have to find a way to optimize operating within it and do it in a way that's going to be genuine, going to be practical and bring value. And, and, and that's part of that, that strategy. Uh, um, that strategic thinking again, uh, that we have to come up with ways to do it. Um, else, you know, you've got some decisions to make <laughs> because, uh, and you can use the governance model there too. Yes. You can use the governance model to say, are design sprints working for us? Some of the time, none of the time. When are they working? When do they seem to work better than others? What does a design sprint working look like? What are those success criteria? Very often people say to me, if a design sprint is fun, it was successful. And I say fun is cool, but that's not what a design sprint is supposed to. That's not supposed to be the outcome of the design sprint. How do we measure those outcomes? How do we measure any consequences from these things? Um, And so I think the governance model is designed to be adaptable and flexible for you to monitor and oversee anything that you're doing in your company or trying in your company, whether it's something you've been doing like design sprints or it's something you're thinking about trying like anybody can do research or anybody can interview customers type of democratization. You can try these things and I'm not going to stop you, though I'm going to give you 30 pages of arguments (laughs) against it. But if you're going to do it, Make sure we're make sure we're taking a good look at is this working for us? Because any company that wants to be smart about efficiency and risk and time and money has to be smart about that in all areas. We can't just say we care about risk and efficiency, but now we're going to blow all this wacky time on these workshops and never check if they were worth it. Check if they were worth it. Excuse me. I'm sure some are and some are not. And you've got to figure out. When is this worth it? When is it the right time or way to do it? I've seen too many companies hold workshops that are guessing at users' problems and then guessing at the solutions to the guest problems. It's a guest sandwich and it's full of risk and waste. <laughs> a guest sandwich. That's pretty good. All right. So we have, we have exhausted our list. And so from here, final thoughts as we begin to wrap up. 
What, what final thoughts yeah, do you have for thanks. the audience today? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And uh, I hope people will check out the book, Customers Know You Suck. And it's definitely the kind of book you can skip around if you like. Um, uh, some people who've read it say, wow, it's it's almost like a manual. You know, I don't have yes. to read it straight through. I can skip around. You absolutely can skip around. Um, I was asked in another podcast, what is the unmissable chapter? And of course, I said chapter 18, which is about strategy <laughs> and planning. I also want people to know there's a Miro board that goes with the book. So when nice. I talk about some of these new models that I've come up with, like the impact map and the change dependency map and some of the other things that I, I believe I've invented, I didn't steal them from anybody else. <coughs> people, um, <laughs> I've got mirror board versions of them so that if you want to try some exercises or you want to bring these exercises to your coworkers because you like team exercises, these these things are are there as well. Um, And that I'm always accessible. You know, if people would like to talk to me about the content of the book, about training it at their company since transforming toward customers, it is not the customers know you suck training. That's too upsetting (laughs) for people to hear. It is the transforming toward customer sense centricity training. Um, you know, if I can bring the training to your company, I, I would love to. Um, we also have the public workshops for that. And uh, and if there's anything that my company can can do for you, you like I said, we're helping uh, companies understand what's blocking them from customer centricity, though I wrote all of my secrets into the book, all the things that I do when I go into companies to help them understand what's blocking them and the things I do to help them uh, get away from that. I put all that in the book. So, uh, you know, if there's anything people think I can do come drop by. We've got a new website at customercentricity.com and I'm still building it up, but it's going to have, uh, it's got a blog. I've just written a few posts there. It's going to have the models from the book and uh, some of the content that isn't in other places. So I'm eventually going to figure out all of my different websites and what the hell they do, but uh, please drop by customercentricity.com for some of that content and deltacx.media for uh, the book and the um, workshops. Awesome. So thank you. Awesome. Awesome. So that sort of piggybacks us onto the very last thing uh, before we sign off. But where can folks mm-hmm. find and connect with you? You mentioned how the accessibility and you mentioned some of the resources, but uh, and I think you touched on some of the throughout, but let's make sure we sort of package them all up here. At the end, where can folks find and connect with Debbie Levitt? Yeah. So uh, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is called Delta CX. Uh, We've got over 700 hours of video up there. So you can certainly search YouTube for topics that interest you. We might have already done a show about it. Um, I do have Slack and Discord communities. You can find those at deltacx.com slash links, L-I-N-K-S. Those communities are free. <laughs> Etc. Uh, so you are welcome to join those. Please be active. Please join the channels and and ask questions. I'm there. Other people are there helping. It's a really supportive place. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I don't always connect with people. Some people are just following me. I don't always connect. Don't take that personally. Um, but please do find and follow me on LinkedIn. 
And of course, uh, the websites, customercentricity.com, deltacx.media. Deltacx.com, as of when we're recording this, is a little uh, old and needs a redo, but I've been focusing on the other two uh, more recently. So uh, those are some of the key places you can find me. I will be rolling my Debbie Levitt as a speaker website into the deltacx.media website. So whatever types of uh, questions or things you might have for me, just find me somewhere. Send a note. You can email me at deb at deltacx.com. You can message me on LinkedIn. These are the key places. I'm not, I'm not tweeting. I'm not mastodoning. Um, I'm, I have an Instagram, but I think I have 70 followers and four posts. So, you know, you're mostly going to find me on LinkedIn and in my own community. Um, and, uh, and thank you. Thank you, Darren. Okay. Yes. And thank you for, for coming on the show today. I know people are going to absolutely love this and I'm going to, I'm going to task you to help me to make sure I've got all the links to all your references. I like to, uh, so for those of you who, uh, writing them down as she was giving those doesn't pan out. Don't worry about it. We want to post all of the references to the places that Debbie just mentioned in the description for the podcast. So that way they'll be there easy to find. And then that way you can collect them and go and bookmark them and go and visit and things of that nature. But we want to make it easy for people to access these resources. So again, thanks again for coming on the show today, Debbie. And now we got to repeat this. Thanks to the listeners. We got to repeat this other times now. Now we we got Debbie in the loop, especially when we have the children come back. uh, Because I do, especially I've started doing, I'm coming up on my third anniversary of the podcast. It took this long for me to, to have Debbie on the show. So my apologies well, with that. All but, right. Um, Better we, late than never. When, when it comes to anniversary time, we actually have people who've been on the show before come back and we do almost like a little anthology type of, of things. So uh, now Debbie is part of that and we'll get everybody. Okay. Let's Memories get, let's get Mark. Let's get like the corner of my mind. Yes. She can sing very, very, very well. You should Oh see no, I'm singing very badly. I've COVID everybody. I'm, I'm coughing and everything. I'm living on Mucinex. Hashtag not sponsored. But yeah, this has been, this has been dynamite. I, I'm just having a ball and I love listening. Uh, anyway, so it just sit. And I'm the quiet guy. My wife doesn't know I'm home uh, half the time uh, <laughs> because I'm I'm quiet. And and uh, so that's I did, especially when somebody is pouring out wisdom, knowledge, and information such as this. So again, thank you, thank you, very very much. The U.S. community, thank you. I know is going to be immensely grateful for you taking the time to share with us on today. So, folks, my that, pleasure. <laughs> that is all the time we have for today. So. Uh, time to sign off. This is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.